Well, I stayed in a real castle last night. What a wonderful uh, piece of hospitality you folks uh, have given to me during my stay here, and it's been delightful. I do apologize that I won't be able to stay this evening for the college group uh, because of this emergency that's come up. Uh, so therefore, let me just extend the invitation for college students. If you can possibly make it for lunch today, uh, I would really look for, of course, I may be sort of barraging somebody's home where we're going to be eating, but uh, as many of you as possible, I hope you can come out and, and join us. That'll be uh, to make up for the, the lack of doing something this evening. Uh, before I get into my message for today, I want to issue a call to prayer. Uh, this is a worldwide call to prayer that's been going around the world uh, by email to various places. Uh, and it's a call to prayer for November 21st to the 23rd for prayer and fasting. And it has to do with the fact that the Iranian Majlis, the Iranian parliament, has just promulgated and approved uh, three new laws. And these laws are about to be approved by the so-called Guardian Council of the Islamic Scholars. And the three things that they have promulgated are the following. Number one. Any Muslim man who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ shall be put to death. Law number two, any female who becomes a follower of Christ leaving Islam shall be imprisoned for life. And number three, any Christian who tells a Muslim about Christ shall be put to death. So you'd say, well, what does that matter? There probably aren't very many people who become Christians in Iran. We know Muslims are resistant to the gospel. Well, friends, that's changing. We would guesstimate 50 to 100,000 Iranian Muslims have become Christians. So we have 50 to 100,000 of our brethren right now facing the very real possibility of death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Our media is totally ignoring this. Please don't ignore this. Take time to pray for our brethren in Iran who are really facing the ultimate challenge to their faith. By the way, I don't think they're going to be able to stop the growth of the gospel they're not going to be able to stop the growth of the gospel. Well, my subject today uh, is a biblical theology of missions. And as you might expect, I'm a professor. So this is actually a course I teach at the seminary where I uh, work, Columbia uh, Biblical Seminary. And normally this is a class uh, which takes 15 weeks of three hours. Uh, that would make it uh, the equivalent of 45 hours of teaching. Well, I'm going to try to distill this down into just uh, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, or 40 minutes or so. So we're going to have to move fairly high speed here. And my text for today uh, is the Bible, <clears throat> minus four chapters. Okay, because you understand, everything in the Bible, with the exception of these four chapters, has to do with God's work in redeeming and reconciling a lost humanity back into the intimate relationship with himself that was his purpose at the creation. There are really only four chapters in the Bible that don't have to do with missions. They are the first two chapters of Genesis that have to do with creation and the creation of humanity, and the last two chapters of Revelation, which gives us our destiny, our picture. You see, we have our origin, and we have our destiny. And everything else is that story in the middle of how God is bringing humanity back into right relationship with himself. However, as I was thinking about it, it's really hard to tell this story without having the first two chapters, too. Because, um, you know, that really sets the stage for what we're about. So, if you don't mind, 
Uh, we'll start with the first two chapters of Genesis, and then we'll move real fast right through the rest of the Bible. And I will just ignore those last two chapters, but you can read them on your own because there's a lot of encouragement there of what our destiny is meant to be. So I'm going to do a couple of other things. Uh, I'm going to actually ask you from time to time to stand, if you're able, and we're going to read some scripture passages right off the screen here, if that's all right. Um, that's a way to, rather than me just kind of reading from a book, we can all stand up and read it together, okay? And I'll tell you when that happens. Uh, how many of you know who this guy is? few of you? This is uh, Dr. Piper. And in fact, I was astonished to see you actually have the very quote that I'm going to give you today uh, on the front page of your bulletin. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he said a very interesting thing, and it's also on the front of your, your uh, bulletin there. He said, missions is not the ultimate purpose of the church. Worship is. And I couldn't agree with him more. The church exists to create worship amongst every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But missions exists because worship doesn't. And this is John Piper from Let the Nations Be Glad. Well, what, however, friends, is worship? What do we mean, or what does he mean when he talks about worship? Well, I'm going to give you a very brief little definition here. Worship is the celebration of the intimate relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. That's I know there are lots of other definitions of worship you could give, but worship, in my mind, is when we get together to celebrate the reality of the living relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And that brings me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Would you all stand and let's, let's read this together? Uh, those of you who can, let's read this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I have a question here. What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Now, you'll excuse me. I'll use a lot of illustrations from Islam because I'm sort of passionate about Muslims. You might guess that after a while. Um, about three weeks ago, I was in Kirkland Penitentiary where I work, and I was visiting with an imam from uh, another penitentiary who was in for some medical treatment. And I'd heard that he was interested in discussing the gospel. So I went in and uh, we were having a conversation. And uh, I asked him this question. I read the passage from Genesis, which is where I always begin when talking to Muslims. And I said, what do you think it means that we're made in the image of God? You know, Muslims really don't have a good answer to that question. They don't really know what it means. So I explained for him. I said, look. God is complex. God is complex. And you are made a complex creature in his image for what purpose? For the purpose of intimate, personal relationship. Now, when I said complex, you're all good Presbyterians, aren't you? Is this a Presbyterian church? Or is it not? Oh, I thought with John Piper on your front bulletin, that meant you were Presbyterian. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not sure. But you are confessional, right? 
And, and what is the nature of your God? He's triune, right? You believe in Trinity, I trust? I hope, I hope, in fact, that you're unabashedly Trinitarian. Because you see, God has relationship built into His very nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are in eternal relationship. And that's why you as a complex creature made in his image are able to have intimate relationship with him. Muslims cannot have a personal relationship with God. By the way, uh, I'm not quoting myself. I'm quoting Ismail Faruqi. In 1997, there was a gathering of about 500 Western converts to Islam in Cairo, Egypt. And they gathered there to learn from Ismail Faruqi the deeper things of Islam. And Ismail Faruqi had two main points in his sermon that day in Cairo. Point number one, a Muslim cannot have a personal relationship with God. Point number two, a Muslim cannot personally experience God. Now, friends, why do you think he felt he needed to say that to a group of Western converts to Islam? Simple. They all came from Judeo-Christian backgrounds and have been taught since they were little kids that you could have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Ismail Faruqi needed to set them straight. They needed to stop having just a thin veneer of Islam over a largely Judeo-Christian body. Okay? You cannot have a personal relationship with God in Islam. Why is that? Simple. God in Islam is a monad. He's unitarian. He is a singularity. He's a black hole. You cannot have a relationship with a singularity. In fact, philosophically speaking, for those of you who are... Any philosophers here? Anybody in the philosophy department? Okay, here's an interesting thought, and you can explain it to them later. Absolute unity is indistinguishable from non-being. Think about that. Absolute unity is indistinguishable from non-being. So what is God saying here in Genesis 1? He's saying, I have created you in my image for the purpose of intimate relationship. And Genesis chapter 2 explains that, doesn't it? What happens in Genesis chapter 2? Well, Adam walks in the garden with God. And you know that song, those of you who are a little older, you remember this song? And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. I hear a few of you singing out there. All right, that's the illustration. Humankind, together with God, in the Garden of Eden, in intimate relationship. And of course, God creates Eve because the vertical isn't the only thing. Human beings need horizontal relationship as well. And so you have these two individuals created for intimate relationship with each other and intimate relationship with God. That is the whole purpose that you see from Genesis 1 and 2. And it's the very thing that Muslims cannot understand. Well, as you know, there's a problem. It comes in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where those bonds of relationship and the trust that is necessary to them are broken. First, Eve is tempted to distrust what God has said by, by the serpent, by Satan. And she eats and then gives to her husband. And in the process, two things happen. The bonds of trust in relationship to God are broken. And then ultimately, you know what happens when, when God comes to look for them. Uh, where are you? And they're hiding. 
What happened to the relationship? What happened to the relationship? The relationship is broken. You know, my Muslim friends, I'd often say to them, uh, how do you get to heaven? And they'll say, well, if I keep all the rules and regulations. Well, I'd say, how many rules and regulations did Adam have? One. Could he keep it? No. And what happens when he broke it? Well, all the good stuff he might have done before for however long he was in heaven, none of that counted, none of that mattered anymore because the relationship and the bonds of trust had been broken. You see, it's not about how good you are. You can't be good enough for God because that's not what it's about. It's about relationship. And when the relationship is broken, how do you get forgiveness? How do you get reconciliation? How do you bring the two back together in right relationship? And of course you notice that the consequences of the sin doesn't just extend to the relationship with God, it also extends to the relationship of Adam to Eve. Have you eaten the fruit? Ah, the woman's fault. The woman that you gave to me, somehow it's your fault that you gave her to me. And that's why I sinned. Notice what that does to the trust relationship between Adam and Eve. I bet you Eve was real happy to hear Adam talk like that. Right? So we see fragmented vertical relationship. We see fragmented horizontal relationship. And the rest of the picture of Genesis through to chapter 12 is a picture of this breakdown of relationship between human beings and between uh, uh, human beings and God. Well... That brings us to the next question. Um, I'm going to read this for you. You don't have to stand up, but let, let me just read this. In chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, we see the nations of the world have now expanded, and uh, God has, has created the ethno-linguistic diversity of the world in Genesis chapter 11 uh, by fiat. And then in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, he initiates his great rescue mission. In other words, how am I going to bring humanity back into right relationship with myself? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find a person who I'll reestablish that relationship with. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God selects this individual named Abram, later became Abraham, and he makes a promise to Abram. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what is the blessing? Those of you who had the perspectives course, you know the answer to this question, but I won't put you on the spot. Uh, what's the blessing? The blessing is the restored covenantal love relationship with God. That's the whole point from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 12 says, I'm going to restore you to that blessed relationship. And not only that, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And what is it when the nations get the blessing? They get the restored covenantal love relationship with God as well. You see, that's the whole point. Many people have called this passage from Genesis 12 the Great Commission of the Old Testament. The Great Commission of the Old Testament. To be blessed by having covenantal love relationship with God and to spread that blessing, the knowledge of that covenantal relationship with God to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And by the way, that means all of the peoples of the Muslim world as well. Because they need it. Friends, they can't have this personal relationship with the monad Allah. They can't know him. They can't experience him. You have 
that opportunity and the responsibility to share it with them. So, God says, I will restore the relationship. But you know, isn't sin still there? And here's another funny thing. I often ask my Muslim friends, what kind of laws did Abraham have at this point? Muslims use the word sharia for law. What kind of sharia did Abraham have? He didn't have any. Romans tells you that, doesn't it? He's justified by faith. He's not earning his salvation, because you don't earn a salvation. You don't earn a relationship. By the way, what child ever went like this? I was good enough to be born. Is there anyone here who earned their birth? No, it was a gift from your parents, wasn't it? Okay? And that's how it is in a relationship with God. It's not something you earn by keeping the law, by being a good enough person. It's a gift that you receive from God. But there is a problem, friends, and it has to do with this issue of sin. You know that sin uh, is a breakdown in the relationship, and it requires reconciliation and forgiveness. But friends, what does forgiveness mean? What does forgiveness mean? Well, I'll give you a very simple definition. Forgiveness means, when I forgive someone who has hurt me, it means that I take the consequences of what they did against me upon myself. That is what forgiveness means. So what happens? First of all, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son that you love, and sacrifice him on the mount that I'll show to you. Take your only son. Now, there's a picture being given here. It's a picture that says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. When you rebel against God, and we're all born in that rebellion, you face death. The punishment, the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23 tells us. So, God in essence says, your son is worthy to die, sacrifice him, because he's a sinner just like you are. Now, you know what happens in the story, Genesis chapter 22. As Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, God substitutes a ram in the place of the child. And Abraham sacrificed the animal instead, a substitutionary atonement. By the way, did you know that Muslims around the world, every year at the Eid al-Adha, they celebrate this event? They sacrifice an animal in obedience to the example that Abraham gave. They say, why? Why the shedding of blood? I can remember when I was at Stockholm University, they were very upset with Christians. They say, all this blood stuff. We're talking about blood. You know, what's, what's the problem with you people? You know, gory religion. What's the blood? It is the pouring out of life for sin. It means the animal takes the consequences of my sin. But you know, Hebrews 10:12 tells us that animals can't really cover our sin. That's why in the Muslim world they have to repeat these sacrifices year after year after year after year. The beautiful picture comes that ultimately God is setting up a sacrifice. And it will be a one and only son. But it will be God's son. It will be God's son who will bear the burden of our sins. And because he's perfect and righteous, he has authority to forgive everyone. Let me give you just a small picture of this. In 1985, I had the uh, 
misfortune to fall into the hands of a mob in Bangladesh, in a little town called Baldipukur. And I was very nearly beaten to death. I got a spear through my arm, almost lost my left eye. Got really well worked over. Uh, got saved out of that situation. It's a long story. I don't have time to tell it here. Maybe over lunch, perhaps. Um, and then I found myself in an unusual situation. Uh, the police gathered around and wanted me to take out a case against the villagers. And I knew that that was just going to lead to some bribery and people getting beaten up and probably only innocent people getting in trouble. So I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to forgive them instead, <clears throat> which led me to think I was about to get beaten up for the second time by the police because they were a little upset at my decision. But I wrote out a letter and I forgave the villagers. And think about this. When I forgave them, did I get justice? No. Did I get revenge? No. Then who suffered the consequences of what was done? Who had to go to the hospital? Who had to get the medicines? Who had to get patched up? Well, I did. You see, that's what forgiveness means. You take the consequences of someone else's sin on yourself. But here's the interesting thing. Because it was a sin against me, I could forgive them, but I can't forgive anybody else's sin. My suffering in that situation has no redemptive value for any other human being. Right? But you see, Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect Lamb of God. Therefore, he has authority through his suffering and sacrifice to pay the price for everyone's sin. And that's the picture that we get in Genesis chapter 22. So, what does forgiveness mean? It means that I take the consequences of your sin against me upon myself. And that's exactly what God intends to do through Jesus Christ. And he sets this up by describing later on, as you go through the prophets, just who this ultimate sacrifice for sins will be. Would you stand and let's read Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 together. One of the prophets predicts the one who would bear our iniquities. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Amen. You may be seated. I show there the picture of the Passover lamb from Exodus because this idea was also true then that God would be making a substitutionary atonement to forgive our sins. Ultimately, what Isaiah is saying, the Passover lamb is not an animal, but a person. It's going to be a person who will bear our sins and who will make it possible for us to reestablish that intimate personal relationship with God for which we were created. So we come to Jesus. I'm moving fast here. You'll excuse me, but we do have a limited amount of time. Uh, and you remember this story. This is uh, Simeon, that great old saint from the Old Testament who's kind of the bridge to the New Testament. And he's standing there in the temple when uh, Maria and Joseph come in with Jesus to dedicate him to the Lord. And he takes Jesus into his arms and he says a couple of very interesting things. Isaiah 49, 6, he said, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus' mission is not just for the Jews, but it's for all the earth, for every tribe, for every tongue, for every people, for every nation. And then this is what he prays as he holds Jesus in his arms. You know, he was told by the Lord that he wasn't going to die until he'd seen the Savior. And now he knows he can depart in peace because he's seen the Savior. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation 
which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. In other words, in the coming kingdom, there will be no Gentiles. There will be no distinction between Jew and Greek, between Muslim and Hindu and Christian and Buddhist. But in that kingdom, all the tribes and tongues and nations will be gathered together in the same place, following the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon understands this. By the way, uh, let's hop through a little bit of the teaching of Jesus. Do you remember that the longest conversation in the entire Bible of Jesus with another human being is not with the religious leaders and it's not with the disciples. It's with a Gentile Samaritan woman. That is the longest conversation you'll find in the Bible between Jesus and another human being. And it's in John chapter 4. And if you remember the story, she is a Gentile woman, says, how is it that you being a Jew talk to me who is a Samaritan woman? And John adds a little parenthesis for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, ethno-linguistic differential here, even mutual hatred. It's a little bit like Americans today who don't like Muslims, right? You see somebody with Muslim clothing on and uh, it's a Samaritan for you and you as a good Jew you have no dealings with Samaritans, right? Well, of course not. Wrong. Because you're meant to cross those barriers. You're meant to be a cross-cultural messenger of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus gives you an example of. You know how the lady sets up all these roadblocks? Like, I don't want to have a conversation with you, and then now we're going to have a religious argument, and who do you think you are? And Jesus gently but lovingly steers his way through all of those roadblocks until he gets to the point where he's touched the deepest need in her life. And that's where this passage comes in, where she says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And you know what happens? She becomes an evangelist, doesn't she? She goes back into her village and she brings all the people out to meet Jesus. She says, meet this guy who told me everything I ever did. Friends, are you a lighthouse like that in your neighborhood? You know, we're talking about missions and the ends of the earth and all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. But did you realize that today all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations on earth are here in America? Uh, there's no such thing as monocultural ministry anymore. All ministry in North America today is multicultural. Uh, it's unavoidable. Because the nations are right down the street in your neighborhood. Is God using you, your home, to be a lighthouse in your neighborhood, on your cul-de-sac? Is your house a house where hospitality is practiced and where non-Christians feel welcome to come into your home? If you want to know one of the things that I love about Bangladeshi culture... Uh, many things that I love about the culture of the country where I spent nine years. But one of the things I deeply love about Bangladesh is the wonderful level of hospitality. How many times we were invited into a Bangladeshi home, and you know, they were offended if we didn't bring our kids. They were offended if we didn't bring our kids. Kids were always welcome. We brought the kids in. The kids vanished immediately. They took care of the kids. And my wife and I would just have a wonderful time eating the very best food that they could afford to feed us out of their love. And they're not even followers of Jesus. 
I really wish the church in North America would recapture the reality of the necessity of hospitality. That your home, friends, does not belong to you. Your home belongs to Jesus. And it ought to be a place where ministry is carried out. Think about that. I hope I don't make you feel uncomfortable. It's really joyful when you make your home what the Samaritan woman did. She became the messenger of Jesus to her village. Are you a messenger of Jesus to your village? Because missions is really about not just the global, but the local. In fact, they've even coined a word out of this. We're global. Christians are global. You are globally oriented and you're locally involved. Amen? Do you believe that? Okay. Well, let's go on because the climax of redemption comes at the cross. Would you all stand and let's read this together from Luke chapter 23, verses 37 and 38. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Amen. You may be seated. This is the climax of redemption. This is the climax of forgiveness. The Father does forgive for Jesus has taken the consequences of our sin. That is the basis of forgiveness. That I take the consequences of your actions against me upon myself. And for God to be able to forgive each and every one of us, he has to take those consequences himself. That's why Jesus has authority to forgive and to reconcile and to restore the relationship to God. And the joy comes with the resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead. God demonstrates that the sacrifice is acceptable in his sight. And the acceptableness of that sacrifice is demonstrated when Jesus comes out of the tomb alive. He is alive. He is risen indeed. And out of that flows this joy of salvation, which should characterize your life. God has saved you, not on the basis of anything you did, but on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for you. And he's got a job for you. As soon as Jesus is raised from the dead, what does he do? He gives a great commandment to all Christians. Five times at the end of each of the canonical Gospels, at the beginning of the book of Acts. In fact, I've got a little chart to show it here. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, Mark 16, 15-19, Luke 24, 44-48, which we read today, John 20, verses 21 and 22, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to do a real quick whirlwind tour through these. All right, are you ready? John 20, verses 21 and 22. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Notice some things here. Father sends the Son. Son sends us. The Father sent out the Son as the incarnation. And you are sent out as the incarnation of Jesus to your neighborhood, to your state, to your country, to your world. Are you a good incarnation of Jesus? For many people, you may be the only Bible that people will ever read. You are the representation of Christ. As the Father has sent Jesus, Jesus sends us. He's our model. 
The Holy Spirit is our power. Again, notice that biblical missions is unabashedly Trinitarian. You'll notice something about all of these great commission statements. It always talks about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, you get that in the epistles too. Uh, what does 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 say? You know, that you have been redeemed by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Trinitarian ministry. Because it's all about relationship. It's all about knowing God in an intimate, personal way. Luke 24, we already read this, so we won't read it today. By the way, um, here you have a prophetic summary of what will take place among all nations. A little bit like Matthew 24, verse 14. Uh, his followers are to be witnesses and proclaimers of pardon in his name. So we know what our message is too. You're not just an ambassador of Jesus. You know what the message is. Jesus has authority to forgive sins and restore people to right relationship with God. Okay, Matthew 28. Let's read this together as we get ready to conclude our time here today. Could you stand please and let's read this? I hope you can see this pretty well. It's a little far away, but uh, you might be able to do it from memory, too. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. You may be seated. Notice the alls in here. All authority, all peoples, all that he commanded, and he is with us all the days. He's with our brethren in Iran as they face death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? And we are taught to teach everything of the gospel, not just a little bit. Our goal is to present every human being complete in Jesus Christ. That was Paul's ambition. Okay? And he has all authority. I know that our culture today tells Christians one thing primarily, and that is you need to shut up. Right? Isn't that what your culture teaches you today? Shut up? Uh, I can't shut up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just can't. Especially when Muslims are coming to Christ all across the globe. I mean, why would I want to shut up now? This is the time when Muslims... And by the way, I, I often think of it this way for our secular friends who, who really think it's terrible that Christians are trying to tell Muslims about Jesus. I like to think of it this way. If I succeed in what I'm trying to do, I will preserve the opportunity for a secularist to believe as he or she wishes. But if they succeed in shutting up the Christians and Islam takes over, their way of life is finished. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? This is especially true in Europe. If we don't see a large revival, particularly of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus in Europe, then Europe as a civilization is finished. It's over. Okay? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom for women, all the rest of that is over if Islam takes over. So it's ironic that the people who are desperately trying to get us to shut up are the people who are really dependent on us being successful if they want their way of life to continue. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that kind of funny? But it's also the way it should be. That as we carry this gospel forward, that we are actually preserving 
so many things that would otherwise be lost. So, note the absolute exclusivity. John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't have much time to talk about this, but in our world today, uh, we have a lot of people saying that, you know... You Christians are so intolerant. You want to say that any other way will lead to God. And, you know, well, first of all, I have a real hard time thinking that God is the kind of schizophrenic that, that this would sort of posit him to be. Because, you see, in Buddhism, the God doesn't really exist at all. Because, you see, both God and you and everything else in the universe is just a mass of unreal vibrations. And the whole point of meditation is to Get the vibrations to stop. No ontology, no God, no being at all. And then on the other side, you have a God who says, I am real and I am the source of all life and, and I have created you. Now, I'm sorry, friends, those, those two ideas are not reconcilable. Okay? And we have to look for where the truth is. But more importantly, uh, I want to talk about why Christians need to believe that Jesus is the only way. How many of you have heard about the persecution of Christians going on in Orissa, India? How many of you have heard about this? About 400 villages burned to the ground, 600 churches burned down, about 100 Christian pastors and other leaders murdered. Most of you haven't even heard about it, have you? Notice how our uh, media makes a good point of, of avoiding certain news stories. Have you noticed that? They're very good at excluding certain news stories. Um, but an interesting thing about this situation, uh, I watched a testimony that was on French television, it wasn't here in America, but it was on French television, of a wife of a pastor who had a knife put to his throat, and he was told, convert back to Hinduism or we will kill you. And he refused to go back to Hinduism, so they killed him, right there in front of his wife. Now here's the interesting thing. One of my friends studied people in Gujarat who came under persecution for their faith and were put in these kind of situations. And some of them stayed faithful to the Lord and some of them fell away. And this gentleman asked the question, why did certain people stay faithful and who were they and why did certain people fall away? And you know what the number one reason he found in his doctoral dissertation research where he interviewed about 500 ex, some who'd fallen away from Christ and some who'd stayed faithful to him? He found the number one reason was this. All those who stayed faithful believed that Jesus was the only way and had a strong sense of joy in their salvation. All the Christians who fell away expressed pluralistic ideas that many ways lead to God. And you know that makes sense. If you think any way is a good way to God, and someone puts a knife to your throat and says, leave Christ and become a Hindu or I'll kill you, well, hey, I'm not stupid. If Hinduism is just as good as Christianity to get you to God, well, why wouldn't I convert to Hinduism then? You see, pluralism is ultimately saying to the Christian, we want to set you up and prepare you to be unfaithful to Christ. You see... In the world in which we live today, where Christianity is increasingly persecuted, pluralism means ultimately falling away from Jesus. Okay? So keep that in mind. Remember the lesson from Gujarat and from Orissa. That, you know, we're not intolerant. Anybody else can preach whatever else they want to preach. But you see, every worldview is exclusivistic. Hinduism is exclusivistic. Muslims will tell you all Christians are going to hell. 
Okay? All religions are exclusive, including secularism, by the way. Why does the secularist preach his secularism? Because he thinks his worldview is the best. Right? Why do the newspapers emphasize certain kinds of news and not others? Simple. Because they're pushing their worldview. So, pluralism ultimately leads to denying the Christian faith. If Jesus isn't unique, who would be willing to suffer for him? If he's just one way amongst many. By the way, uh, I, I put this little section in because the Pew Foundation did a study of evangelicals in North America, and they found that 57% of evangelicals in North America believe that other ways will get you to God. What does that tell you if persecution ever comes here to North America? How faithful will our people stand for Jesus if it costs them something? Interesting question. Our brethren in, in Iran today face the very real possibility of death for their faith in Christ. Do the pluralists want them all to convert back to Islam? Interesting thought. Final thought from Acts 1.8. And let's finish with that. Would you stand and this will be our final reading. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. You may be seated. And let's just finish with this final thought. Jesus has given us a commission, and he's made it very clear that we are his witnesses to spread the good news about how you can be reconciled and have an intimate relationship with God. Through him. That's our calling. And you know, he also points out that it's going to happen. Uh, let me just go to the final picture in Revelation. This is what you read today. It's interesting how we sort of dovetail here. This is my final slide. We read today about what the ultimate picture is going to be when peoples from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be standing before God at the end of time to worship him, celebrating that intimate relationship that they have with him. Through Jesus Christ. That's your destiny. That's your destiny. This task will be finished. What's your part in it right now? Do you have a place in the biblical theology of missions? Because as you see, the whole of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to the very end, is a story of our origins, our task, and our destiny. And our task is to make sure that as many people as possible are in that kingdom, celebrating that living relationship that they have through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, as we finish our time today, I pray that you would touch your people's hearts. That every person here would have a, a deep sense of gratitude and joy to you about what you have accomplished through Jesus in reconciling them and forgiving them, bringing them into intimate relationship with yourself. And then, Lord, like the Samaritan woman, we long to go back to our villages full of excitement and saying, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did and who brought me back to God. Lord, make every person here your ambassador, wherever they are. Make them local people, Lord, praying for the world, concerned for the nations, but also involved locally wherever you call them. Make us local people, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.